When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, it's Jay Zawoski. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. We'll be right with you with the new episode in a matter of moments. But first, want to let you know about my new Blackhawks book coming out on November 10th. It's called The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks, published by Triumph Books. The foreword is written by two-time Stanley Cup champion David Boland. If you're interested in ordering my book, and I would greatly appreciate it if you did, head to bookshop.org or bookiesbookstores.com to support great independent booksellers if you're more of an amazon kind of a person you can get it there too or any major book retailer if you'd like a signed advanced copy of the book head to madhousepod.com book click on the image there and fill out that google form and i will ship you a signed copy within days the name of the book the big 50 the men and moments that made the chicago blackhawks by jay zawoski that's me coming out november 10th from triumph books The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Triple Threat Sports, Marishka's in Crest Hill, Dr. Squatch Soap Company, and by Fry the Coop. Here are your hosts, NBC Chicago's James Naveau and 670 The Scores Hockey Guy, Jay Zawoski. Let's drop the puck. Welcome in, friends, to this special edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. And when I say special, I mean it today. My name is James Naveau from NBC5 Chicago. With me, as always, is Jay Zawoski of 670 The Score. I'm rushing through intros because we have a very (laughs) special guest on the podcast today. Blackhawks VP and General Manager Stan Bowman. Jay, I don't know how we pulled this off, but apparently someone takes us seriously. Whether that's a good idea or not is yet to be determined. <laughs> it's a very exciting day. By far the biggest guest we've ever had on this podcast. But before we get no started. No offense to Dave Coulier. No, Dave Coulier, our first, well, that might have been bigger, but no one heard it because we were very, very new. We, we were still the big <laughs> Navowski podcast, I think, when that happened. Yes, we were. Uh, real quick, before we get started with Stan, Give us a follow on Twitter at MadhousePod, Instagram Madhouse underscore pod, Facebook Madhouse Hockey CHI. Visit MadhousePod.com. You can buy my book there. You can visit our merch shop there, or you can go straight to MadhousePodMerch.com, powered by our friends at Triple Threat Sports. For all your team outfitting needs, call Chris, 708-478-6090. Without further ado, here is our interview with Blackhawks VP and GM, Stan Bowman. Stan, I know it's been a crazy busy week for you. We appreciate you taking some uh, time out for the Madhouse podcast listeners. Happy to be here. Stan, this season is obviously, it was a really strange year with the stoppage because of COVID and the timing of everything going on. Like right now, we should obviously be preparing or playing a new NHL season. And instead, we're what, roughly in August of the normal NHL calendar. What are you kind of doing in your uh, unexpected downtime right now? And how strange is all of this for you? Yeah, I was talking to someone this morning and I said, this is 
equivalent to late July or August in a normal off season. So this is definitely the quiet time for us. You know, you get through the draft, you get through the initial free agency and, uh, you know, at that point, for the most part, your team is set. Uh, you know, there can certainly be some tweaks here and there, whether it's, uh, you know, potential trades, but you know, that, that's not likely. So, um, you're right. This is a quiet time. I think the, the one unique thing is there is some hockey, you know, that's starting to be played around the, around the world with different success. You know, some leagues have started and stopped and, uh, you know, I, I think what I'm hoping for is uh, the ability to watch some hockey. Normally, you know, in, in August, there's really nothing to, to speak of. And this year, we might get the benefit of being able to to see some players for next year's draft. That's what I'm hoping to be able to do as we get into November here and, and some teams start playing. But uh, besides that, I think the biggest thing we're all trying to figure out is what next year is going to look like. Um you know, I know I have a GM call coming up with uh, through the NHL, and we're going to hopefully get some information there. Um, I think, you know, right now we don't have any more info than you do as far as the start or the what the schedule is going to look like and all kinds of questions. So, uh, you know, that would be nice if we can get a little bit more clarity in the next few weeks. Well, the NHL did a great job of maintaining the bubble throughout the playoffs. Uh, and while we really don't know what next season is going to look like, do you think an extended bubble or multiple bubble cities could work? Is that something that could work over the course of a 60 game season? Cause even some of the teams that were only there for a couple of weeks, some of the players off the record were saying, eh, it wasn't really what we were promised. We sort of felt like prisoners in our hotel rooms is a bubble system of some kind sustainable for a whole season. Do you think? Uh, that, that's a great question. It would be challenging. Uh, I wouldn't say it would be impossible. I think they would have to try to, allow some some breaks in there i think you know we were there for whatever it was three weeks um and it was tough by the by the end of it and it, it maybe sounds strange to people who weren't there like how hard could it be to just you know be in your hotel and watch hockey games uh, i think you know we're used to at least getting out and walking around and you know getting a different environment and uh so i think if they were going to do something like that they would probably have to uh, modify some things for the the breaks uh, to just go straight through in a 60 game season would be tough um, whether that's the season they, they arrive on but I think we have to be willing to consider different options I think I'm not ruling anything out right now um, you know we certainly want to get back and play and the NHL did a great job like you said I mean it was very safe and I think as we look into next year I know they're putting a lot of thought into it. So uh, they've got they've got a good approach. I think they're going to take their time to come up with the best solution. Right now, we just don't know what that would be. Well, you mentioned the bubble, and you said a few times that your opportunity to be in the bubble with Danny Wirtz is sort of what led to this newfound transparency for you and for the franchise. Uh, what about those conversations? What about that time spent sort of, I guess, steered the both of you and the organization in the direction of, hey, we're going to be a lot more transparent because over the last 10 years, I've been covering this team since I think 09 would be when I started covering it unofficially uh, for the score. It's always been one of the most locked down organizations in town. It was really hard to get any information at all. Why the sudden change? What happened in those conversations to change that? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you some perspective on that. I think so. Danny took over uh, in his role was probably April or, maybe early May. And in, in that time period, I had known Danny over the years, you know, sort of peripherally, like he wasn't around and that active in the hockey team, uh, but I knew him casually. So I got a chance to know him even better uh, throughout May and June. But really when we got to mid July and our team left to go to Edmonton, he came with us. So when we were there, uh, like we just referenced, there was a lot of downtime. There was really nothing happening. You, you either have a practice and then you'd have the rest of the day where you were uh, just with each other and couldn't go anywhere. So we spent a lot of, um, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, just conversations. And Danny asked a lot of questions about trying to understand, you know, where our team was at, where we saw things, what was our thought process moving forward? Why did we do this? Why did we do that? And trying to understand some background. And in those conversations, 
I had an opportunity to give him some longer form answers. Sometimes you have to say, well, let me first explain how we got there. And so in the process of that, he said a few times, like, this was really helpful for me. Like, I, I didn't know that. I've been, I mean, my dad had, had the team for a long time, and I, I, I know a lot about the Blackhawks, but some of the stuff you said that really makes sense, we should tell that story better. Like, we, we should let people in on this, because if they have more information, they, they, it will give them a better perspective on where we're at. So we continued those conversations, and then obviously the, we finished, we came back, um, we were busy preparing for the draft and over the, la- the month of September, we started talking more about what it would look like and how it could benefit everybody if we were more open and transparent. So I think you know, this is really a starting point. I, this isn't meant to just be a few days of doing a lot of media and then like we really do want to try to engage more and um, not just myself. I think everybody um, across the board can do a better job of, you know, we, we care about our fans. We want them to care about us. And I think the, the more information we can give them, um, the better it would be. Of course, in a situation like that, where you're wanting to be more transparent with the fans, that, that does have some degree of accountability that comes along with it, right? Like every move that you make from this moment forward is going to be viewed through the lens of that letter and your comments this week. We've seen that with a lot of teams, especially here in Chicago, that they've kind of sought out that additional transparency, but it does come with that accountability. Is that something that you considered as the organization kind of became a little bit more open and forward about where it was wanting to go in the future? Uh, well, I, I think the accountability is always there. I suppose it's maybe talked about in a different way, but I don't know that this brings on additional accountability. It, it, for me, it's always been there. I think when you're trying to be more open, you're, you, you have to be willing to talk about it, which is totally fine. I, mean, I have no problem with that. And I think we've been, uh, I've been trying to communicate that we, we recognize that we've made mistakes. We've done things that didn't work out. We can explain the thought process on why we went down a certain road and you can understand better that we didn't just do something off the cuff and we don't always get it right. I mean, then that's on me and the, the mistakes that were made. Uh, certainly I was part of it. And, uh, you know, you, you can look back in time and try to learn from them and hopefully you can, it can guide you better in the future. So uh, I, I think that's, that's the spirit that we're doing with this is to try to, provide more context so that people can understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Our interview with Stan Bowman continues in a moment on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Dr. Squatch is an all-natural, handmade-in-the-USA soap, hair care, cologne, beard oil, just general wellness company. You're going to want to check out drsquatch.com at the top right corner of the page there. You'll take that Squatch quiz. Once you're ready to check out, enter that promo code MADHOUSE20 and you'll save 20% on your order and help the podcast at the same time. What do we recommend? Well, that's very easy. My favorite is the Cool Fresh Aloe Soap. The Cold Brew Cleanse has become a favorite as well. The Pine Tower is the flagship soap for Dr. Squatch, but really that Squatch quiz will tell you everything you need to know about joining us here at Squatch Nation. Get yourself some thick bricks at drsquatch.com and don't forget that promo Promo code MADHOUSE20. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Fry the Coop and frythecoop.com. Locations in Oaklawn, Elmhurst, Westtown, and coming soon to Prospect Heights. Go try some of the best Nashville hot chicken, not only in Chicagoland, but on the planet. Get yourself the chicken tenders, the donut chicken sandwich, the mac and cheese. Everything you taste at Fry the Coop is fresh. Everything you taste at Fry the Coop is amazing. The best hot chicken I've ever had, and I am a connoisseur. So go visit our friends in Oaklawn, Elmhurst, West Town, and coming soon to Prospect Heights. Come get your happiness at Fry the Coop. Place your order online at frythecoop.com and grab your food from the pickup window. It's safe, it's easy, it's fast. Fry the Coop, frythecoop.com. Our guest on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is Blackhawks Vice President and General Manager, Stan Bowman. On the topic of, you know, rebuilding and sort of now, I know rebuild is a dangerous word, and a lot of people see that as trade everybody and be the youngest team in hockey. But did this decision, I know you've said in some of the interviews you've done this week that this has sort of been the plan for a while. We're going to get more into that as we go on. But did this year's uh, playoff appearance and the victory over the Oilers, did that sort of change the way 
you view the immediate future or the, you know, the near future next two or three years, did that influence your decision-making in any way, shape or form? Uh, well, it, it did, but probably not in the way you're thinking. I think for me, what it showed was that um, this uh, ability to incorporate young players, there is a payoff for it. I mean, we saw it with Kirby. I think yeah, he was probably the, the guy that took the biggest step forward for our team in Edmonton. I thought he came back from the, the layoff, uh, whatever you want to call it, from March until July. He looked like a, just a different player. His confidence was higher. He was uh, more of a factor in the games. So I think that showed me that our investment in Kirby last season was a worthwhile investment. And like we could have given that opportunity to somebody more experienced back in October, November, December, when Kirby wasn't playing a lot. Like he was playing, I don't know, 10 minutes a game. And there, there was somebody, we, we could have had a more veteran player that we were, that would have done a better job in the moment back in November and December than Kirby did. But we invested in him. We hoped that he would take the steps. And sure enough, he did. Now he's a pretty unique, special talent. I, I don't expect everyone to have that rapid acceleration or development. But for me, what it showed was this is our path forward. If we want to get ourselves back to being a team that can compete with the top teams to have more players top to bottom that are uh, effective NHLers, we need to do more of that. And we were on that path already. You're right. We were doing this. We weren't talking much about it though. We were talking about young players, but I think the difference now is we're saying that that's, we're going to do even more of it as we go forward. And there is, there are going to be some growing pains with that, but we're not trying to tear this apart. I think that you're right. The, the hard part with the word rebuild, I'm not afraid to use it, but at the same time, I think it means something different to me than it does to, to a lot of people. So I, we can call it whatever we want to call it. We need to get more depth in our team. We need to surround our best players with more. And the way that we believe to do that is to invest in young players because they have some growth in a year to two to three years, there will be a payoff. Okay. So this gets me to my question probably a little bit sooner than I expected it to, but you sort of steered me there when you mentioned that you had veteran players that probably could have played instead of Kirby and done a better job. When I look at this roster now, I see Ian Mitchell, I see Wyatt Kalnick, I see Matthew Highmore, I see maybe Kurashev down the road, but ahead of those guys is a roadblock of veterans. When you look at the defense, you've got your six kind of already there with Keith Seabrook, Murphy, Dahan, uh, Zadorov, and Boquist. There's your six. Where's the spot for Ian Mitchell? Up front, I see Carpenter, I see Kampf, I see... Um, Yanmark, which is a signing I love. Walmark is a signing I love. But those are some veteran guys that are blocking spots for some of the younger guys I mentioned. How does that jive with letting these young players play when, when you look at the depth chart on paper? And I know it's paper. You can tear it up in a second. Where is the path onto the team for those guys? Well, I think the, that's a good question. I think the answer is overlooked which is like we don't just use six defensemen like we used probably 10 last year or I don't even maybe we use more than that so you're right like if everybody's healthy and everybody's playing well then then you only have six spots on defense but we anticipate there's going to be there's going to be ups and downs for some of these young players so there's going to be some in and out and there's going to be some in and out for some of the veteran players too they it's not that they're, it's not like an all or nothing endeavor where this guy plays every game or he plays no games. It's going to be somewhere probably in between. And that's for, that's for the coach to ultimately figure out. That's really for Jeremy to try to put this big puzzle piece together. We've got all these players and up front. Yes, we do have some veterans. We don't have a lot though. We've got certainly Taves and Kane and we've got Carpenter. I mean, David Camp, I don't know if he's a veteran. He's, he's 25. 25 so, right. Yeah, so there's a lot of young players there. Now, I think what, so what we want to try to do is incorporate young players as they can handle it and as they deserve to play more. And it may at some point come at the expense of some veterans. But 
we don't have to map that all out today in October. I think we that's something that's going to play itself out in the coming year. I think the, the focus, though, is we want to make sure that the young players are getting the, the opportunity. And if that means it's a lot of time in Chicago at the expense of a veteran, that could happen if they show that they're getting better and better. If not, if they have to spend some time in Rockford, that's okay as well. Like, I think that's something that we haven't really explained well enough that that's all part of this development process. And if that does happen to Ian Mitchell or Kalnuck or Boquist or whomever, um, it doesn't mean that it's the end of the world. It just means that this is part of the process to develop them because we want to invest in them for the future. Since we're kind of moving on to roster construction right now, I think that it's kind of time to address some of the moves that seemingly kicked everything off this fall. And the first one, of course, of that was letting uh, Corey Crawford leave via free agency. He's obviously, obviously been with the organization really long time, won two Stanley Cups with the team. How difficult of a decision was that for you and for the organization? And why was that the move to make moving forward, uh, potentially opening the door for guys like Colin D. Malcolm Subban, why was that the best move moving forward? Uh, well, a couple points on that. So, Corey, he's been with us obviously a long time. We don't have to go into his accomplishments. I mean, he's he's played a huge role in in what we were able to do uh, when we had the Stanley Cup teams. So, uh, I think, but where we are today, I, I think it's it's fair to say that Corey is not the goalie of our future. We need to find the goalie of our future. So, Corey was the goalie for the last what, nine years, I guess you'd say he was, he was the guy. Uh, and at some point you have to find the next goalie for the Blackhawks. And uh, we had talked to him early on about coming back for one year. Um, and, you know, he wasn't looking for a one year deal, which I, I understand that, you know, if I'm in his shoes, I probably would be looking for a longer term as well. Uh, but as we then talked it through more, the, the second year was more the, the stumbling block for us than it was the, the contract or the dollar amount. And I say that because we need to find the next goalie. So if we had kept Corey for one year, um, we wouldn't, we, we could develop uh, one of the goalies from within. We, we have three of the young goalies that we'll get to in a second here, Subban, Lankin, and Delia. Um, but with Corey here, he, he would be probably playing, playing the lion's share of the games. So we still wouldn't really know where we would be. And if we were going to acquire a young goalie next off season, um, Corey would, would be sort of somewhat in the way of that happening. And when you, when you allocate money to one goalie, you, you can't unsign him. Like he signed for that next year. So the flexibility was key for us. So that's why one year could have worked when it was apparent that wasn't in their plans. Then we turned our attention to, okay, what makes the most sense? And maybe we should give these three goalies a legit chance. It's, instead of bringing in a veteran for one year, um, which you know there are some out there that we could have done that with, we wanted to give these three guys an opportunity. Subban, Lankinen, and Delia, they all have very impressive American League uh, records. They've all been all-stars at the AHL level. Um, you know, Malcolm has had the most opportunity at the NHL, 60 some odd games. But even then, it was more in uh, secondary duty. Uh, you know, in Vegas, he was, he was with the Bruins. And just when he was ready to break through, he moved, went over to Vegas and they, they had Marc-Andre Fleury. So Subban would, you know, he wouldn't really get much of a, a big opportunity. You know, he would play mostly the back-to-backs and uh, you know, the, the, the starter gets the, the run of the, the play there. So we don't really know what we have yet in Malcolm, but we, we think he's got some untapped potential. Same thing with Lankin and Adelia. So we've got three young guys. They're going to be given the opportunity. We need one or two or three of them to really step forward and show that they can do it. And, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out. There isn't really a favorite going in. They're going to get the chance to prove that they can – be the goalie. I just want to spend a second on Corey Crawford too. And I don't know if you have a Twitter burner account, like a lot of uh, GMs do, but we spent a lot of time over the last nine or 10 years, like you said, reminding people how great Corey Crawford was. And to this day, 
I can't think of a more underappreciated Chicago athlete in my lifetime. I'm 42. James is a little bit younger than me than Corey Crawford. I think that guy, for whatever reason, got more derision than praise. And it's, it was so, somewhat unexplicable to me. I'm sure inexplicable to me. I'm sure you saw that too uh, here and there. What do you say to the people that, that doubt Crawford's influence on his team? I, I can't think of someone more underappreciated than Corey. Uh, you hit it right on the on the button there, Jay. I think the only thing I, I've thought about this a lot, especially more when it was happening, like when we would win the cup and people would not even really talk much about Corey. And I never, I tried to, you know, when I would do some interviews way back when, when we, you know, when we were winning the cup and, and point out how impressive he was. And I think it was just because he was overshadowed by so many other stars on those teams. I think if you look back on it, I think, uh, you know, we, he was not there in 2010, but in 2013, we, we had a, a pretty special team, right? That was, we had that great start, we record setting start. It was a shortened season. We were, we were from the beginning, first game of the season to the last game, we were the best team. And that rarely works out that way. Um, and, uh, you know, but we had a really strong, deep team. And I think, um, but as the years went on, that, that 2015 Cup, like I think the value and the importance of the goalie got bigger and bigger and bigger each year as our team was not nearly as deep as it was in 2010 and 13. It's almost like the depth of our team shrunk over time to where we got to 2015. And we really only had four defensemen that year that played the, the lion's share of the minutes. And Corey was so impressive, especially – I thought that was his best year. Um, I mean, he really was unbelievable that Stanley Cup run, and I mean, he didn't get the he, he didn't get it. Like the, the 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 defenseman got a lot of credit that year, and certainly we had you know Taves and Kane and Hosa and on down the list. It was a lot of guys to talk about, and I think it just Corey never got the appreciation that he deserved. I point to that game in Boston where, coincidentally. Boston scored five glove hand goals against Corey. And for whatever reason, this narrative was created that he was this, you know, that, that he was just a passenger on his team. Meanwhile, the Hawks won that game. Rask gave up six goals. Mm-hmm. They just aren't all, weren't all in one place. I, I feel like that game was sort of the point where, despite all the evidence, that's when the conversation sort of was like, eh, Crawford's just sort of a second, you know, he's, he's just riding along with this great team. Yeah, you could be right. And that's, unfortunately, that's kind of, that happens in, in the modern era here where we are, you know, people have little snapshots and things can get uh, blown out of proportion and people remember certain things, certain things make impressions on them. And uh, But you're right. I think his performance was overshadowed and it's unfortunate because he was a huge part of the teams that were, were the Stanley Cup champions. While we're on the subject of underappreciated players who played a big role, obviously, for this team over the years, I think it's logical then to ask you about Brandon Saad. And I know that you've talked about this a million different times, but I know our listeners have been especially interested in this. And I know Jay and I have discussed it a lot. What was that process like coming to the determination to trade a guy like Brandon Saad, who is so critical to your team on both ends of the ice, obviously an excellent defensive forward, can score a lot too. What was that process like and how did you approach that? That decision probably a really tough one to uh, decide to part ways with him and trade him. Yeah, I think that's part of the part of the job that uh, is a challenge for a general manager. But I think when you're in this role, you you have to look at it this way, as opposed to the fans, which you know, their their job is not they're not tasked with trying to build the team for the future. But so as I'm looking at all of our players, you kind of look at where they are, their status, where they're contract is where they will be a year from now so in Brandon's case you know he was coming going into the last year of his deal uh he's at six million dollars and he's still young you know young to be a free agent he's 28 years old um now and you know when when he finishes this if we would have just kept him to the end of the season um we would certainly have the right to extend his contract as the team that he was part of Um, but you'd have to be willing to step up and do that. And you'd probably have to allocate around the same amount. Now, I don't know what he'll make next year. He's probably not going to make $3 million or $2 million. So I think when you look at that and you look at our financial picture, 
that wasn't in the cards for us. So we weren't going to be extending him into the future. And that's not because we don't think he's a good player. Or it's just based on where we're at with some of our other players. We have to look at being able to pay Kirby Doc in two years. Same thing with Boquist. So we want to make sure that, you know, I don't think Brandon's going to come back for a one-year deal. Um, so the reality is he's probably going to get a multi-year deal, probably around what he's making now. Um, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Maybe he makes five, maybe he makes seven. I don't know what he'll get, but it's going to be in that ballpark. So once we decide that we weren't going to be keeping him, then you have to say, okay, we can't just play it out and then let him walk away. That would be really poor asset management on my part. So then the question is, do you trade him now or do you just keep him and trade him during the season or at the deadline? Um, if you pass the deadline, he's got no trade value because of the fact that teams can just wait to, you know, sign him. So, you know, that, that that's kind of the, the backdrop. So these are all things, it's a long-winded lead up, but these are things that maybe people don't think about. So then you decided you're not going to be keeping him beyond this year. And do you trade him now or do you wait and potentially trade him at the trade deadline? But there's some risks involved there. Like the player gets hurt, which, you know, Brandon got hurt last year. He missed about a month, month and a half. And he's not a player that's got a lot of injuries, but anything can happen to a guy. So if you keep him expecting to trade him at the deadline and then all of a sudden he's injured and you can't trade him, that's a bad outcome. So I don't know the percentage of that, but it's certainly possible. Uh, and then the other possibility is you, you keep him and trade him and you're, you're trading then for future assets because teams who acquire someone like Saad at the deadline, they're a team that's going to make a playoff push. They're not going to be trading a player off their roster because that they're trying to supplement the roster. They're not trying to create a hole in the roster. So those, te- those deals are typically draft choice, prospect, future type deals. And there's nothing wrong with those. I, I like those deals. We'd be open to doing that to in the, in the future. Um, but when you do that, you're getting uh, a player who will be drafted in 2021 or 22. You, you may not get a current year draft pick depending on the team you're dealing with. So, and, and it's going to be a later draft choice in the first round because these teams are, you know, top, top tier teams and, and that's okay. So, but I think then you're weighing that with, so that's one potential return versus this return. So when we started talking about Nikita Zadorov, that's a player that we're really excited about. I don't look at that as a consolation prize. I look at him as someone that can play, really help our team in the short term and in the long term, not only with his own play, he's a pretty unique player with his size, his physicality. He's an intimidating force out there. There's not a lot of guys like that in the entire league. He's still young. He's, he's only 25. Um, so I think he can be an upgrade just with his talent. But then the way you can complement our young players is Adam Boquist. I think we're somewhat familiar with him. I think Ian Mitchell is someone you may not be as familiar with, but I think Ian's going to be uh, a, a big player for us in the coming years. You know, um, So the, Adam and Ian are both younger, smaller, skilled, right-handed defensemen. I think either one of them could be a nice partner for Zadorov. So that's the reason that that trade went the way it was. We were very eager to get Nikita. It wasn't like we had to settle for him. That's something that we think is a, a nice piece to the puzzle. Something that sort of came to me during our podcast uh, earlier this week was the possibility that there might not be a trade deadline this year. If something happens and, and COVID spikes again and the season gets shut down, the season might just stop. And then you don't even have a trade deadline to deal Brandon side. Is that something that had come to your mind at any yeah. point during that decision-making process? Yes, because I think we, we didn't know that this last year would go the way it went. And it was certainly uh, a strange situation and, I looked at, you know, there were some teams that paid a big price and barely got to use the player that they acquired in the, in the trade. And they, they maybe had a couple games in, in Edmonton and then they were out. So yeah, there, there's an unknown element to that, which uh, certainly weighed against us just sitting tight and keeping him. Um, 
So once again, this is not anything to do with Brandon. I think very happy with his performance. I think he's a really good two-way player, like you guys indicated. It's just where we're at and where we're going to allocate our money in the coming years. It wasn't a fit long-term. You've already kind of addressed some of the uh, concerns that we had about just kind of the perception of the trade and why the valuation of the trade was looked at more for a defenseman who's going to help the team now instead of looking at draft picks and potentially prospects who are not going to help until two and three years down the line. So I thought that a good place maybe to go with the conversation now is maybe to discuss some of the response that you've gotten from inside of the organization in response to kind of the retooling, rebuilding, whatever we would we're going to call it. it. And it was one of the things that I noticed was that Jonathan Taves had kind of said that he had called it a shock and some of the other veterans on the team perhaps felt the same way. I'm not sure. What, did that response surprise you when it came to making these types of moves to say goodbye to Corey and to Brandon? I don't think so in the sense that if you put yourself in their shoes, it, they've, been, they've been right next to this guy in the locker room for 10, 11, 12 years. You know, they're, it's a close friend of theirs. They've had some incredible moments together, you know, lifting the Stanley Cup as teammates. So I don't know that there's ever a good time to do to separate from them or there's an easy way to do it. So uh, I, I accept that. I, I understand that the passion that, that they feel for wanting to keep everybody together. Um, I wish that was the case. I wish we could just everyone stay together and everyone play like they did five years ago, that'd be great. But you know, the world doesn't work that way. So we're, we're trying to find the way to get ourselves back there. And uh, I think the, you know, the, the only thing that maybe was uh, confusing was the, the perception we touched on it early on is that that word rebuild means something different to a lot of people. It means we're just going to tear this apart. And if that's what, people were thinking, our, our players included, um, I can see why the reaction might be different than now that we've explained to them what we're talking about. It's really more of a continuation of a path that we've been on. We've seen these young players get an opportunity. This is not a new phenomenon. It's not like we were, we were the youngest team in the playoffs last year. We weren't a veteran-laden team that's all of a sudden saying we're changing this whole approach. We were really young last year, and we're just going to continue on that road. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Blackhawks general manager Stan Bowman in a moment on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is made possible by our friends at Marishka's in Crest Hill, 604 Theodore Street. They're family-owned and operated since 1933. You've heard us talking about Marishka's since day one of the Madhouse Podcast, and with good reason, some of the best food you will ever have. Go visit our friends in Crest Hill. Try the world-famous poor boy, the steaks, the chops, the seafood, the double-baked potato, the mountain of onion rings. Everything you taste at Marishka's will have you coming back again and again. Again, visit their website, marishkas.com, or their Facebook page, facebook.com slash marishkas. That's M-E-R-I-C-H-K-A-S. Close only on Christmas, Easter, the 4th of July, and Thanksgiving. Go visit our friends at Marishkas in Crest Hill. Back to our conversation with Blackhawks VP and GM Stan Bowman on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. I think let's shift the conversation here to Jeremy Colleton as head coach, and I think um we can qualify this a lot of ways. He was put in a really tough situation, replacing a legend who was beloved by his players, beloved by fans. That's really tough to do. And I think that he probably started behind the eight ball in the eyes of a lot of fans. One thing you've talked about with Jeremy since his hiring, two things actually that you always seem to focus on are his communication skills and his development. And that's sort of where I want to focus here. Um, over the last year or two, there've been a couple instances of Blackhawks players uh, Duncan Keith specifically publicly expressing not dislike of the coach, but sort of showing frustration with the system uh, that it's not as free as Joel Quenville's system was and that he sort of liked it the old way. When you've got such a such an important core, you've got four guys likely that are going to have their numbers hanging over the United Center for the rest of eternity still on the roster. When you've got those guys maybe not 100% on board with the coach, does that become something you have to keep an eye on? Because that could be, you know, if I'm Adam Boquist and I'm on the ice during a practice and Jeremy Collin says something and I look over at my partner, Duncan Keith, and there's an eye roll or there is a twist of the head or whatever, 
that can sort of poison the well a little bit, I think. Are you convinced that the veterans are now fully on board with what Jeremy Cowan is doing here in Chicago? Well, I think it's been a process, Jay. It's a, it's a good question. I'll give you some perspective on that. Um, I think number one, change is hard on anybody, whether you're an athlete, whether you're, you know, you're changing jobs or whether you're you know, doing something in your personal life, change is tough on everybody, myself included. So some people can embrace change quicker than others. I think the one thing that is overlooked and maybe not talked about enough is it was a really unique circumstance for what we had in Chicago. I don't know that there's a parallel in all of sports where you had uh, one coach with one group of players for 10 years or eight years or nine years. It wasn't like, the, so they had played only for essentially one coach for such a long time. Number one, coaches don't last that long in professional sports these days. So Joel was here a long, long time understandably so we had a ton of success um and those players were also for playing for one team for so long so they hadn't they hadn't dealt with trying to play for a different coach whether it's jeremy or whether it was scotty bowman it doesn't matter who that new coach would have been it was going to be an adjustment because you get familiar with you build up habits as a player and you have a lot of success with those habits. And, and you have a comfort level with doing things a certain way. Then a new coach comes in and you have new players. There's fewer of your, your teammates from years past there. We're down to just really four guys now that have been together. And all of a sudden we're doing things differently. And not dramatic, they don't have to be dramatic changes, but they are changes from the way they were. And I think it's hard. It's, it's not that they don't want to do it. It's it, they, they weren't having a lot of success executing and they were trying to build new habits, but they don't, they didn't, it wasn't happening very quickly for them. I think we saw certainly the first year when Jeremy took over that half of season, we were, we always looked like a step slow or behind because everyone was thinking then in hockey, it's so hard so they weren't, it's not that they weren't trying to do it. They were trying, but they were, they were sort of stuck in neutral all the time. And they were never, they were never as um, natural as they, they had been before when they could play with their eyes closed. So I think we've made, so they've made strides in learning some new habits, but it's taken, it's taken longer than I thought it would, or that I thought it should. And it's not really an unwillingness to do it, though. It's just the fact that it's, it's underestimated how hard that is. And we have other veterans who have played for four or five teams or three different coaches. So they come in and they say, OK, you want us to play that way? That's fine. Yeah, I did that two years ago. That's easy. I can do that. And our guys, they had a harder time with it. So you're right. Dunk has made some comments about how this is not a developmental league. This is the NHL. And I don't disagree with Dunk. And I think when, when those, you got to remember, when they came up in the NHL back in 2006, 7, and 8, the league was so much different than it is now. There, there was very few teenagers in the league back then. It was really unusual for Patrick to make the team right out of the draft. Now you get at least three or four guys every year that, that make their team. Like Kirby did it with us. Like, Back in 2007, I don't think Kirby would have stayed with us. Um, like, Kaner was, was a superstar from the time he got here. But the league was different back then, and players probably earned their responsibilities more than they do now. But it's not that I think this way is a better way. There's nothing – I think those guys are from a different era – and in that era, you earned it more. You, you Dunk spent two years in the minors, two full seasons in, in Norfolk before he got his chance. So they're looking at like, but my point to those guys is, listen, the world is different now. The cap has changed the world. We need, we need low-priced players, and low-priced equals young. So we're giving young players more opportunities. Like, Dunk didn't get this chance when he was 20. He didn't. He was... He was down in the minors learning. And in a perfect world, that's the way we would do it now. 
but we don't have that luxury. So we're trying to make the best of where we are today. And I think I've explained this to them. I, I think they get it. It's not that they don't get it. It's just, it takes them some time. So they're not bad guys or they're not fighting the system. I think they're just coming to grips with a changing landscape. And I actually give them credit for sticking with it. It's been hard for them. So I understand what they're saying. And I think that's, I hope you can have a little bit more perspective on that whole picture. I don't think that they're behind the scenes fighting it. It's just, it's hard to change. Stan, I, normally we're the ones bringing up the how different it was in 2005 and 2006 with the Blackhawks. So thank you for kind of reiterating something that we've to our listeners quite a bit. Um, and you dovetailed perfectly into a question that I had specifically about Jeremy Collins. And I even had all the different things that he's had to deal with on a list. And it was just, it's remarkable to me that he's had to go through so much change and so much upheaval in a really short amount of time, especially for an organization that's seen a lot of stability. What quality does Jeremy possess as the head coach that makes him the right coach in your estimation for the direction that the Blackhawks organization is going in at this time? Uh, well, Jay mentioned it a few minutes ago, but I, I have touched on it before. With I think his, his communication skills with the players are in line with what younger people today need, uh, the feedback that they need. And I'll go back a little bit again to talk about um, you know, Taves and Kane and Keith and Seabrook, they came up in a different era when the coach would, would say to them, you got to be way better tomorrow. And then they would say, get out, of the, get out of here and be better. And they would go and they would figure out how to be better. If you try to tell one of our players today, if you call them in and say, you were terrible last night, you better play better tomorrow or it's not going to work. They, they leave the room and they say like, well, what does that mean? Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. They want show me show like can you can you sit down with me let's let's talk about it like what did I do wrong there like what do you want me to do different they want like I, I my son's 18 years old and they want that feedback you know they want to know they want to please you and they want to do what the coach wants but they want you to show them I think that's what Jeremy's strength is is he doesn't always tell them what they want to hear like he'll give them bad news but at least then they know okay, this is specifically what I'm talking about. This is what, this is why you're not going to play tomorrow. These are the things that we've, we've talked about. We gave you feedback. We worked with you on it. The game came, you didn't execute. So we need you to come out. We need you to think about it again, but then we need to put you back in there and give you another chance. And I think that's what, that's why I'm encouraged about where we're headed because there has to be that opportunity for a player who fails to earn earn their way back in in a short order it's not earn their way back after three months of sitting out and finally there's no one else around so, so if someone gets hurt then you stick the guy back in that's the way it used to work but that's not the way it works anymore and i think that's what jeremy's really good at i think he he understands how to handle the modern athlete that's great. I think that's the first way I've heard, because I've heard you say communication a lot, but to detail it that way, that that's what this transparency is all about, right? Is clarifying what you mean by that. Because I know like the first time Brent Seabrook was benched, he was like, wait, I was, I didn't know that was coming. And that seemed like, well, wait, we've heard about this communication. Brent wasn't communicated with, therefore he's a bad communicator. I think people connect those dots when maybe they shouldn't be there. Uh, yeah. I want, sorry, right. go ahead. No, that, that's, that's exactly it. I think, and you're right, Jeremy came in in a tough position. Like, I, I always try to explain it this way. Like, if, if we were in an expansion team and you were hiring a coach for the first time, I think Jeremy would be, like, looked upon totally differently. They would look at yeah. him like, wow, this is, this is sort of like a, a really innovative guy that's going to connect with our players and get the most out of them. But, you know, he came in a tough spot, and I, I feel for him that way. But he's aware of it and that that's that's the world we're living in I mean it's it's nobody's fault that's just the way it goes and you got to deal with it yeah I think um just sort of piggybacking on that I I've said a couple times like I don't think that he's a bad coach I've questioned if he's the right coach for this team at this time and now we're going to find out because with this new sort of philosophy underway that seems to based on what you're telling us about Jeremy that's going to suit him better. I want to get to the development part of things too, because that's the other reason that he was brought in here. Um, how do you, uh, you know, if you were to grade his development so far, 
his developing of players, I guess I'd say better. How would you grade that? Because I think he gets a lot of credit for Dominic Kubelik coming into the NHL and becoming a 30-goal scorer. Connor Murphy has grown under Jeremy Cowan. I think Dylan Strom is a guy who came from Arizona, a guy who was struggling to find his game and came in and was almost a point-per-game player right away under Jeremy Cowan. But then I look at Alex Nylander, despite a lot of chances on the top six, didn't really ascend at all. DeBrinkett had a down year. So, and Boak was sort of, I guess you'd say he was sort of level, you know, throughout the season. Didn't have a huge jump, but didn't really have a huge drop. Just kind of stayed the same guy from start to finish. How do you grade Jeremy's development of players so far? Yeah, I think that it's certainly been more good than bad. I think that to mention the, some of the players there that, that you touched on, I'll, I'll expound on them. I think you know, DeBrinket's scoring was down last year. There's no question. I actually thought his overall game, though, took a step forward. And at the end of the day, you want him to score. I mean, he's a goal scorer. He scored 41 the year before. So I think that, but when I look at, I was really impressed with Alex's performance in the playoffs. And he only scored two goals, I think. Uh, but the, he really brought it. Like he was, he was one of the guys that was intense, competitive, he took his game to the next level. His production still wasn't there. And I, I hate to just say bad luck, but I, there really was a lot of that. Like he sure. had a lot of great chances, which, you know, the year before, I think mo a lot of those go in. So maybe somewhere in the middle is more reality. Maybe it's not going to be 41 every year, but maybe more realistic is a 30, a consistent 30 goal scorer. And, you know, in the good years, he's going to hit 40. And, I think uh, so. I think I was impressed with with Alex's game, even though the the, uh, the goals were down. Um, Nylander is obviously he gets a lot of attention in the in the media. I know that with the fans as well. I think it, overall, Alex did take a step last year. I think it didn't it didn't end well as far as the the last game he didn't play. But if if you take that part out of it, he went from a guy that had he has a lot of talent who had never been in the NHL really before to proving he can play in the league. Now he's got to, he's got to be a more consistent contributor. So I think part of that is on us. And part of that is on Alex to figure out like he's got, he's got a really good skill set with his size and his skating and his shot and his playmaking. But a lot of times he's trying to do things that don't pan out. And, you know, if he almost simplified his game um, and we've talked to him about this, like, I think he wants to make a great play all the time and he does pull it off. Like he's, he's got really good skills, but he doesn't pull it off enough to, to be a consistent performer. And that's why his contribute, his usage goes up and down. So I think that this upcoming year is a, is a critical year for him to, now you've shown you can be an NHL player, but can you be a consistent performer? doesn't mean you're going to have to score 60 points, but can you be a consistent performer in other ways, you know, driving play, transporting the puck, getting the puck to the net, um, getting more shots on the net. Those are the things that are within your control as a player. Uh, some of the other players you mentioned, certainly Kirby, I think it took, took we, we kind of covered him already, took a lot of strides. Uh, I thought Boquist showed a lot of progress. The playoffs is where he didn't. I think, you know, so he probably ended on a, a more of a sour note because he wasn't as effective in the playoffs. But if you look at where Boquist was in November to where he was like in February and March, he was, he was gaining confidence. He was gaining. And then in the playoffs, it, it didn't show. But he, he's also 19 years old. You know, I think it's, it's the hardest position for a young player player as a defenseman as a teenager in the league there's usually only one or two of them in the whole NHL per year who are defensemen to play as teenagers so he probably was ahead of the of his of his development time um, but I think we're looking for him to take the next step and I think Jer Jeremy you know he did work slowly with him we didn't give him a ton of responsibility but we gave him enough that he could handle it and you know, we noticed in the playoffs, he, he wasn't really ready for a bigger role. So we pulled back on it. I think that's something that Jeremy's going to continue to learn is when to push and when to pull. 
I do have a question about the team's defensive prospects, but first I do want to go back to Kirby Doc one more time. I know that we've talked about him extensively in this podcast, but we did have in our notes, Stan, we wanted to let you take a victory lap on Kirby Doc if you would <laughs> like to, because we were definitely looking at the team potentially taking a defenseman last year in the draft, and you took Doc, and he ended up working out really well. So the floor is yours if you want to take a quick victory <laughs> lap on that. Yeah, that's not my style. I mean, I, I'll, I'll leave it to, to say that, you know, it, we certainly studied that closer than anything else last year. You know, when you're picking third overall, you, you have to really be comfortable with the player that you're taking. And for me, as I dove in and I just, I felt, I felt in my heart that he was the guy that I believed in the most and not putting down those other players. I think they're going to have good NHL careers, but I felt there was the, his combination of his two-way game, his potential with his size, and really it's more his determination to be a player. I think we saw it in the playoffs in Edmonton. Like he, he's not satisfied at all, even with how like people were saying how great he played, and I thought he did, but he wasn't happy at all. Like he wanted, he wants so much more. He has such high hopes and expectations for himself. That's the quality that I saw And I think that's what can help your team become an elite team. And it was tremendous watching him develop as a player and showcase some of the skills that we saw in the lead up to the NHL draft. So we, for sure, Jay and I saw what you saw in terms of his two-way game, his ability to win puck battles, his hands, all of those things. And obviously he's really shown that at the NHL level. That brings me to the next kind of big prospect in the pipeline that could potentially be making an impact this, uh, this season is Ian Mitchell. And I know we touched on him a little bit earlier. Do you expect him at this point, Stan, to compete for a roster spot? And what parts of his game should fans of this team be most excited about if he does end up making that jump to the NHL level? I do expect him to. I got, honestly, I thought a year ago when he decided to go back to school, uh, for his junior year, he was captain of Denver. We had talked to him that summer, uh, and I thought at that time he was ahead of Adam Boquist. You know, he's a year older than Adam, a year and a half older. Uh, so I, I say that not to put Adam down, but, I, you know, I think just Ian's probably total game is maybe a little bit more mature. And uh, so I don't think anything's changed. You know, in, in the intervening time, he went and had a really good season, and I think the thing that's impressive about Ian is uh, he's a pretty well-rounded defenseman. Uh, he certainly has the offensive ability. You know, he's comfortable with the puck. He can carry the puck. He was, you know, he ran their power play, uh, but he did everything. He was their big minute guy on defensive situations, penalty kill. Uh, he is a true two-way defenseman and he's not a big guy. That's probably the, the biggest thing he's going to have to learn is, uh, he's strong, but he's not tall. He's five eleven defenseman, so that's probably the the adjustment for him is going to go from college level to the to the NHL. You're going to have to be able to handle the fastest players, the biggest, the strongest, and you know that part of it is probably the adjustment for him. But I think his he really is a, a well-rounded defenseman, um, very good skater, active player. You know, you know, some guys are good skaters, but they don't use it that often they, they kind of pick their spots uh, I think Ian's more of in motion a lot and you'll notice him like it would be hard to watch a, a game with Ian in it and just say I didn't I didn't notice what he did and I didn't see him he's a pretty active guy and I think uh, I think he's going to play a big role now whether he hits it right away I think that's what we're trying to say is I'm not sure and I hope he does but if he doesn't, if he needs time in, in and out of the lineup, if he needs time in Rockford, that's okay. It's not a it's not a failure. Like we're not trying to say this guy's the savior. But I do I do think that he's gonna be a in the coming years, he's gonna be a, a really important player for us. Stan, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We want to thank uh, John Stein Miller and Adam Rago and the Blackhawks for making this happen. I just have a couple more questions real quick. Sure. If you have time, just hypothetically speaking, um, how difficult would it be in this economic environment that the NHL is in with the flat cap uh, remaining flat for the time being? And look, just dealing with a hard cap in general, how difficult would it be if you decide you want to move a big deal? Not you, the collective you, you, a GM, wants to move a $10.5 million deal. How difficult would that be for any GM to sort of execute in this climate? 
Well, I, I think right now it's the, the financial picture of the cap is, is really challenging for every team. There's a handful of teams that have a fair amount of cap space right now. But if you, if you were to compare that to, say, three or four years ago, there was a lot more teams that had more flexibility. So now most teams are looking more at dollar in, dollar out type trades. Um, you know, that can change as the years go by and teams have players expire who they don't renew. They may open up more cap room. But if you look at it today, just if you were to pull it up and see, there's a handful of teams, like one hand, how many have like a lot of cap room. The rest are really within a couple million of the cap or less or over it. So I think big moves like that, uh, if you're trying to trade a significant dollar amount, would entail a lot of money coming back your way. And that's the way the deal would have to be structured. So it could, could be a good player making a lot of money coming your way, but to, to think that you're going to offload big dollars in today's environment, it's just not happening. All right. In this new era of transparency, we're going to get a question hopefully answered that we've all been wondering for 10 years, um, at least. What specifically does your father do for the organization? How involved is he in the day-to-day? How often do you lean on him? Is he more of an outside observer? Is he involved in the day-to-day things? How involved is Scotty Bowman with the Blackhawks today? Uh, I would say he's more peripherally involved. Um, I think that his biggest uh, asset for me is he's still a coach at heart and he watches more hockey probably than you and me combined. And I watch a lot of hockey uh, (laughs) and I take it you do as well. Um, So he uh, like, he's really a coach at heart. So his biggest thing is he can, he really knows players in the league. Like he watches he, he, he doesn't watch prospects really like he doesn't uh, watch minor league players. He's really a great resource for, you know, I guess partially in the scouting more so really be a resource for Jeremy and our coaches to talk about ideas. Like he's, he's on top of what other teams are doing, how they're playing, why they're being successful. He has observations about that stuff. So he's just got ideas that way. As far as like the running of the day-to-day operations. No, he's, He's 87 years old now. That's not really his thing, you know, but he's, he's as sharp as the tack as far as you ask him. I mean, he can tell you that the top four defensemen on every team, he can tell you how what their power play looks like. He's really uh, still very dialed in at that. So, you know, and I ask him his perspective on things because he's seen so much in the day, but, but he's not out there, uh, you know, looking at players in Europe and that. Does he like Zadorov? <laughs> he does. Yeah, he brings an element that, you know, he thinks that we've been lacking. And I think that's, if you look around the league, that element, there's not a lot of that left. There's not a lot of guys. The, the thing that's appealing, and he mentioned this to me, is some of the physical players in the league, they still sometimes shy away from going after the other team's top players because they know, like, if you go after Patrick Kane, you're going to hear about it, but he doesn't care. He just goes after. So if you're, <laughs> he's not afraid. Like, so when you're playing against, whether it's Edmonton, he's no problem being physical on McDavid. And he knows that guys are going to pay attention to him, but he's fine with that. You know, I think that he's such a unique player that way that I think that's an element we haven't had for a while. And I think it, I think he's going to be a very popular player for our fans to, to embrace. Stan, I know Jay's going to want to wrap this thing up and do the thank yous and the plaudits and all that, but I also wanted to say that we appreciated your forthrightness and your insight. I think that we have definitely learned a lot about kind of the insights of this team, what the direction is, and I do appreciate your time today. I do have one more question for you, though. You've done quite a few interviews the last few days. Are you looking forward to some downtime in the next couple months where you don't have to talk to all of us? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't mind doing the interviews. I, I would say I'm, that's not really my natural style. You know, I'm probably quieter by nature. And, uh, but I understand where we are today. I think it's probably better for everybody if, I, if I'm more communicative. So I, I'm not, I don't need to be doing media tours. That's not really my thing. I know that there's a, there's a time for it. And I'm happy to be on and, and talk to you guys more often. Um, look forward to that. But yes, I think to answer your question, I will be happy to, uh, get a little bit of downtime 
All right, so a weekly every Thursday segment's out of the question. <laughs> uh, I'll get back to you on that. All right, one. good. Sounds good. We can talk about Notre Dame football if you want. We don't have to talk about hockey. Okay. Yeah, we, we can talk about other stuff. That's true. <laughs> I, I have done a lot of these guys, but I, I got to say, you, this one was probably the the best kind of rhythm. I think you guys have a pretty good handle on things. Thanks, Stan. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That was Blackhawks Vice President and General Manager Stan Bowman on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Thanks to everybody who listened to the podcast. I know this is the 500th Stan Bowman interview, but if you listen to ours in full, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. We always do appreciate your support here on the Madhouse Podcast. James and I are going to record another episode on Friday, sort of reacting and reflecting on our talk with Stan Bowman. So look for that sometime Friday afternoon, Friday evening. But until then, we'll talk to you on the next Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Triple Threat Sports, Marishka's and Crest Hill, Dr. Squatch, and by Fry the Coop. London Stock Exchange Group is here to be your essential global markets infrastructure and data partner, where open isn't just a platform, but a philosophy, giving you the freedom to make your mark in the world. LSEG, open makes more possible.